I'm still growing growing produce in water. So, and I've got fish that that poop in the water that provide all of the nutrients that the the plants need. So that that kind of sums it all down. I'm actually a bacteria farmer, produce farmer, and fish farmer. So that's how that all works. <laughs> Podcast Junkies, episode fifty three. What is Podcast Junkies, you might ask, if you're new to the show? I call it the podcaster's voice. It's my way of connecting with interesting podcasters who've been doing it anywhere from a year or two to up to 10 years, like today's guest, Rob Greenlee. This episode today is brought to you by Podfly. Podfly makes things easier for me. And why is that? Because they do all the technical work and the show descriptions, the transcriptions, the tweetables, and the editing uh, that uh, I used to do, but I don't do anymore. And the reason is because I think there's a better use of my time. That's not to say I can't do it and I didn't enjoy doing it, but I think there's something to be said for letting the pros do their thing. Because... They're experts at it for a reason, and they make your show sound awesome, and they make your show notes look great, and they make your tweetables relevant, and they allow you to provide a whole package for your podcast, and they're really like your folks in the corner, and that's why I love working with them, and I think uh, the team that Corey's put together at Podfly is really a great group of people, and in a way, I'd like to know the people that uh, I work with and that I partner with. And I can literally, literally say that, even though I can't say the word literally, uh, because I've met the guys and gals in person. So what they've done is put together a special deal just for listeners of the show. If you go to podfly.net slash podcast junkies, you'll find a little golden box that you open that has an easter egg in it that you crack and that has a scroll that you unroll and that you read with a magic pen and you get like an answer that they've left for you so if something like that interests you then go check it out podfly.net slash podcast junkies so i'm excited to talk to veterans of podcasting, plain and simple, as I've always been. And for those that listen to the show, you know that I try to go out of my way to talk to folks who can give us a great perspective on podcasting. And Rob is seriously, seriously uh, no different than some of the folks I've had on. He's been in a lot of um, positions in companies that have been related to podcasting. He's worked for Microsoft. He's worked for Podcast One. He now works for Spreaker. So he's really uh, just, I think, with each position, become more and more entrenched in the business of podcasting and just comes at it from from a unique perspective. He's really um, a fascinating guy. He's got a, a long history and a wide range of interests outside of podcasting, which we'll touch upon in the episode which I think is funny because um, you get to hear and listen and learn a lot about someone if you just uh, dig a bit deeper and get to understand um, some of the things they've done in the past and some of the things they've tried, some of the things that worked, some of the things that didn't. And it's, it's, 
uh, a conversation that covers a lot of ground, and you can tell by the the length of this episode that there's probably another hour and a half that we could have talked about. So let's just get to it. I know you're going to enjoy it. Rob Greenlee of Spreaker on Podcast Junkies. So Rob Greenlee, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Podcast Junkies. It's great to be here. I'm glad we got to know each other a little bit better in person, and I think that's the magic of live conferences. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can actually meet people in person and and uh, actually connect on a personal level, and I th- and that's a big reason why I go to those events is is because you know, I have a lot of friends that have been in the podcast space for a long time, and I like to at least connect up with them at least once a year. It's almost like you know each event I go to, I see different people, or I'm so tied up and working or doing panels that I don't really get to see many people actually. So it, that's that's been more of an issue. I'd like to go to one of these events and actually not actually do anything at them and just network. <laughs> yeah, that's something uh, Dave Jackson was saying of the School of Podcasting. Obviously in NMX, he was the head of the podcasting track, which yep. we saw him running around like a chicken with his head cut off. But at uh, Podcast Movement, he was a bit more, much more relaxed, I think I'd like to say, because he didn't have a lot of responsibilities there. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's interesting because I've uh, I was doing a little bit of um, back catalog research, and obviously, since someone like you that's been podcasting for so long, it's an it's an interesting when you look at your trajectory in terms of how long you've been involved in podcasting, where you got started, and and the fact that you can you know it's safe to call yourself a true podcast veteran when you think about the fact that you started your first podcast back in two thousand four. If yeah. I have that correct, yeah. Well. I mean, I was doing similar things to it way before that, too. It just wasn't called podcasting. Um, and it was just making my shows available online, you know, through streaming or downloading directly off the website. It just And, and some of the, the, the pre-podcasting platforms that, that were out there were more around um, the same concept of synchronizing uh, with mobile devices. Not so much from, a, from an RSS perspective, but uh, pre-RSS, um, more direct data connections between apps and um and the mobile devices like uh, my show was on a platform actually you'd be surprised probably to hear this but uh, microsoft was one of the first uh, podcast platforms um they had a product called sync and go which basically enabled uh audio and video files to be synchronized from a windows xp to a pocket pc device through their dock um, it had nothing to do with RSS. It was all done through, you know, a platform that was built between client and and server software um, that uh, was was kind of predating podcasting. And what, what was really funny is that Microsoft killed that um, almost the same time podcasting started. <laughs> <laughs> Bad timing there. So I was on that platform. And I was getting paid. Uh, I was getting paid. What was it like twenty five cents a download? Uh, I was getting paid for my show, my my radio show back then, to be on that platform. So, now, believe it or not, this is the show you started in 1999. Yes, yeah, called the Web Talk World Radio Show. Yeah. And what were some of the topics that you would cover? Is it just covering the world of technology, or specifically uh, stuff related maybe to to uh, what you were doing with the online radio? Yeah. Well, it was more to do with kind of um, online. Um, Back then, 99, 2000, 2001, uh, was kind of the, the tail end of the dot-com collapse. Um, but, but it was a fascinating time from the standpoint of uh, people just in general were fascinated by the internet and the web at that time. It, it was like a very mysterious thing. And a lot of TV shows and a lot of companies were starting up back then that were kind of 
um, doing cool stuff with, uh, you know, the web and the internet. And there is a difference between the web and the internet, but, but the show is really focused on covering all aspects of the web and the internet from companies to security to, to, uh, what was happening with the browsers, what was happening with broadband adoption. And I had guests on from Symantec to Microsoft to, to Google talking about, you know, Gmail and the launch of Gmail and, and just really kind of trying to cover the whole space. And he, he even had uh, stars on from the TV series X-Files um, on, on the show talking about, you know, kind of that geek culture and what was happening. Um, uh, Will Wheaton was on the show back then and, and just, just looking at it from all sides. And that's what really changed when podcasting started was that uh, people started creating shows that were much more niche um, focus. And that was kind of fragmenting my audience. And so anyway, that's a whole nother story. But. <laughs> There's actually a couple of gems hidden in what you just told me. So can you explain to the listener exactly what is the difference in your mind between web and internet? The internet is just a, a, a basically a platform. It's, it's kind of a technical thing, but it's, it's just more a data, data, more of a data exchange platform uh, where the web is very specific to HTTPS uh, file file requests, uh, which is different, right? So you have the the web, which is a very visual medium, right? You transfer files back and forth. You can do do a lot of things. Where the internet is more of a database synchronization, kind of more of a back end server to server type of um, platform. Um, you know, email rides on on. The internet, it doesn't write on the web. That kind of stuff is what I'm, is really, really what the difference is. So when hackers do stuff, there's a difference between, you know, the web and the internet when it comes to that kind of stuff. I thought for a second you were going to say the internet was a collection of tubes. <laughs> uh, that has been said before. Yes. I believe uh, a, uh, a senator up in Alaska actually coined that term. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was I I think that was one of the first uh, memes to go viral. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean in a lot of ways it it kind of encapsulates how a lot of people think of the the web and the internet as a bunch of communication pathways to individuals and uh companies and content. So it's I mean, I can see how a person that doesn't understand the medium would think like that. And um the other thing was the uh was the th- had something I was going to say. Now, the other thing I thought was interesting is you were talking about uh, some of the people you had conversations with. Who from the X-Files came on the show? The Lone Gunman actually came on the show. All, all three of them. They had a spinoff series that was spun off from uh, the X-Files, a series that came out after the X-Files kind of was kind of at its tail end of its run. And all three of the guys came on our show and we did a, did a complete episode with them. I mean, the X-Files, you know, in of itself wasn't really involved in technology that much, but these guys came in and provided that technical assistance to Mulder and Scully, right? They, they were hackers, they were geeky, they were kind of playing around with the internet. They were basically, that whole show and that whole kind of character genre that was within that program was really focused on kind of the geek and the internet culture. And so that's... That's what was really relevant to those guys because th- those guys were like considered to be cool kids back in the the day of the the early days of the the web and the internet. Yeah, where every where everyone where everyone who's um, thinking about internet and geek culture was fascinated with war games. Yeah, exa- well, yeah, exactly. Well, because there was a couple of movies that came out, you know, 
Sandra Bullock kind of launched her career on um, being a kind of a hacker girl um, back in back in those days, and and so yeah, I mean it was just a you know Hollywood basically latched on to this this um, whole thing of um, hacking and and that whole mysterious thing, you know, the Matrix and all this stuff was very much a part of that era, um, and and that was what we were tapping into with our show was kind of that combination of what was happening in there and people's curiosity with it and their they're really misunderstanding of what it was, and and we're trying to provide some clarity on on what was really happening. And quite possibly, the hardest scenes to ever get right from a hacker's perspective are those when they're showing the hacker actually at the keyboard. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, there's always these kind of weird sounds that come from the computer that I've never heard in a real computer before. Have you ever noticed that? It's like these 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 electronic buzzing and tinkling sounds um, yeah, yeah. it's it's like a, you know what computer did you get the idea that that came from <laughs> and then the, the the joke is that uh, apparently the hackers on screen never make use of the keyboard i mean the, yeah. the space bar sorry oh yeah exactly <laughs> they're always typing the keys right yeah That's so, um but that brings me to the question that i just remembered was um this thing we hear of the dark web right this whole area of the internet that uh, apparently some of the numbers i've heard tossed around is 70 to 80 percent of the internet is actually on the dark web yeah and what the definition of the dark web is basically uh, not publicly accessible databases is what they are I mean essentially that's what the dark web is is uh, areas that you can't get to because they're behind firewalls or they're um, blocked from public access so you have to do queries against it in order to get to the the data and but they are there I mean if you think about um, you know a lot of the the hacking that's going on right right now and the the whole security um thing that that we're seeing right now is all coming from the dark web yeah so in about 2004 when you when you created the the podcast what was your inspiration at the time for getting that started oh as far as the show the actual show that I was doing um you know, I started in '99, and what the what what the inspiration was it was I was doing search engine consulting back then. That was back in the early days of um, search marketing, and yeah. I was a marketing major in college, and and I started getting involved in. I mean, this is a big long story, but but I built the the first Florida Juice or Florida Citrus website back in '97, um, '98. You know, up here in Seattle, back in that time, I was working for the Florida Department of Citrus. I was like a marketing rep up here for them. Um, and, and so I built this website. It's, it's still, the domain name is still active today. It's floridajuice.com. Um, it's, it's not the website that I originally had built, but, uh, it's evolved o- over the many years that, uh, that organization has operated that site. But I, but that's, that's what got me involved is that I was a marketing major in college and I got involved in doing kind of, kind of grocery marketing, working with fresh citrus and produce and things like that for a, a citrus commission out of Florida and uh, started getting involved in building websites and doing stuff like that. And that's what got me sucked into it. And then I start learning about search engine marketing. It was like, you know, the early days of um, Netscape and and the Mozilla browser and then AltaVista and, you know, the Excite at Home, you know, search platform. So you go w- way, way back to that kind of stuff. And, and I got sucked up into it from a marketing perspective. And that's what kind of propelled me into going into a radio station and just starting a, a show talking about the the web and the internet and search technology because I was trying to build my client base because I was doing consulting um, 
with companies, smaller companies um, that wanted to optimize their presence in uh, in the search engines. So you're you're actually the second guest that's now transitioned from uh, a, a, a career related to produce into <laughs> really and no like, well, uh, Ray Ortega. I don't know if you knew this, but one of the first podcasts he started was uh, Produce Picker or something like that, and where he would go. I'm not sure if it was video or I don't remember if it was or wasn't video. But he was working in a supermarket and he wanted to just, he picked the topic that he knew somewhat about, but he was, I think the show, the premise of the show was like how to pick the right produce. So, oh, <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I wound up working in the food business for many, many years, uh, actually in the kind of meat side of stuff. I, you know, I used to work for Chiquita Brands and ConAgra and some of the largest food companies in the country I've. I spent years working with. I even owned a restaurant for five years. What type of restaurant? Uh, it was a spiral sliced ham store in, in Delhi, in, uh, right by the University of Washington. Uh, you know, I owned that for five years and wound up working, going to work for my supplier uh, called John Morell, which was owned by Chiquita Brands, being kind of like a sales rep. So I was selling hot dogs, bacon, and lunch meat to, to the big grocery chains for many years. Yeah, my you know, Costco my, and and places like that. My brother uh, works in food distribution in New Orleans, so I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with uh, with that industry. I'm curious since you since you're doing the restaurant for five years, um, I imagined there was a couple of, uh, there would there's there would be a lot of ups and downs during that time. What was the biggest takeaway for you um, as a result of of running that that restaurant? Just how hard it is to run a restaurant. It's a I mean, it was uh, located in a in a mall that was open seven days a week. So it was the the University Village Mall is what it was, and um, it was basically kind of a little bit like a strip mall, but but it was much more elaborate than that. Um, but it, but it was a high end mall, and I think it was just you know, I mean, it was a role of managing people. I I hadn't managed employees before, um, so it was a a um, big learning experience around that as well. You know, I had a lot of college students that actually worked for us and did, did a lot of catering and things like that. So I think that the big thing was just how complex it is to, to run a business uh, and keep up with all the taxes and keep up with employees and keep up with suppliers and making product. I mean, I mean, so we would make like uh, our own fresh soup there. We'd make sandwiches during lunch. So, you know, so we had the whole lunch hour rush and then, just the just the hours and hours and hours. You know, I mean, even during the holidays, because we made hams, you know, we spiral sliced hams and then we honey glazed them. I would like, especially during Christmas and Easter, I would like live in that restaurant. I wouldn't even go home. I actually I slept on the floor in the bathroom. Wow, um, the honest to God truth <laughs> for for many many nights because I just didn't have time to go home. We had too many orders that had to be made. So, so are you completely sick of ham at this point? I don't eat it anymore. I'll just put it to you that way. No, I saw way too much ham. You know, I had like whole semi loads full of hams that uh, we actually had in there. I, 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 actually, I feel really bad about it now because, you know, of all of the pigs that had to die to supply our uh, our customers. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It wasn't, when, when you've wasn't had, good. Yeah, when you've seen that much of it, it can... It probably turned you off to it for yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so um coming back to the the radio show um if i have the dates correctly 2004 was when you actually turned that show into a podcast or yeah correct or i mean it was really as simple as adding an enclosure tag to my current blog feed that i had you know i had a custom blog that i had built for 
for webtalkradio.com and and it's just adding uh, the enclosure tag and then adding a link to the mp3 files it was really as simple as that for me and then i just submitted it to itunes and of course of course itunes really didn't support podcasts for almost eight nine months after podcasting started so it was really those feeds were available in like juice and and a lot of the the early aggregators that were um out there that came out through you know Mr. Curry and Dave Weiner and and a few others out there that were working in the space to to come out with some software that would capture um, enclosures from an RSS feed. So what what was the driving uh, factor for you to actually do that then? Well, I had been working with this whole concept for a long time around working with other platforms. Um, you know, platforms like uh, Serenade, which is out there that most people don't even remember or even know about or um, others that were doing more programmatic syncing between computers and mobile devices back then, you know, sync and go, that kind of stuff. So I was already in that mindset already. I was already pushing Microsoft to, to embrace podcasting. I was involved in working with them back then too. The, how, how long did, did, that, did that run? And- um, the radio show and podcast and all, all stuff that I was doing, you know, like with the XM Satellite Radio Network with the show, I was on 15 broadcast radio stations and uh, two or three public radio stations with the program um, after you know, all things were said and done and on a lot lot of live streaming platforms. I, I stopped it in uh, mid-2006. Um, so it started in 99 and it went to about 2000. So it was almost seven years that I did it um, every every week or most most every week. <laughs> it wasn't every single week. <laughs> And this but, was uh, and this was about the time you were at uh, Melodio. Yeah, I had started to work at Melodio in uh, in late two thousand five, um, just after kind of Apple had launched um, with podcast support. And Melodio uh, was a Seattle startup company that was involved in uh, making applications or Java applications for um, pre smartphone phones back in those days, and you know, like the the Razer devices and Nokia phones and and other um, less than intelligent phones that were out there at that time. And, and um, they, they were in the middle of transitioning from music over to supporting um, podcasts because podcasts was the hot thing back then, right? So they had a, a lot of venture investment that came in. I think they, over the course of me being there for two years, I think they had about $24 million in, in VC investment working with a lot of the big uh big VC firms in Seattle. Um so so they were transitioning over to becoming a spoken word audio platform. And so they had an opportunity for for a person to come in that had expertise in podcasting and radio and spoken word audio and I I applied and got got the position. And so I I worked there for about 2 years, built a bunch of podcast catalogs for I- individual carriers. Um, at uh, places like Singular, which is now the AT&T network, uh, Rogers, O2, I mean, a lot of carriers in Europe um, also built custom catalogs for each one of those, for each of their apps. And each of the the apps that were available to each of those carriers, those carriers were charging like $5 a month to get access to all the data and to get access to the catalogs. And that's what the business model was. And um, so... That's that's what I did for two years. Um, it was basically an extension of what I was already doing with podcasting. So, and then from there, I I spent two years there, and um, and then Zoom was about to launch at a small company called Microsoft, and I applied for that position, 
and wound up um, getting offered that role over there, basically doing pretty much what I had been doing for um, Melodio Mobilecast prior to that. So did you leave Mobilecast or Melodio slash Mobilecast because there you saw some writing on the wall that where they were headed or the model that they had wasn't, wasn't going to be viable in the long term? Or was yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there was a big part of that. They, they were in the middle of transitioning a little bit more back to music again. So they didn't see as much uh, revenue out of podcasting at that point um, in that, that model that they had. So they were trying to hedge their bets a little bit and go back to music because that's what the foundation of the company was, is it, it, it came out of kind of trying to do the same thing with music and they found it to be difficult back then to actually do that. Um, and so, so yeah, at that point I kind of saw the writing on the wall and, and started looking around for other opportunities. And I had heard that uh, Microsoft was looking for somebody that had expertise in podcasting because they were about to add the, the podcast area to their Zoom music service. Um, so I applied and uh, pushed real hard and got, got, got my way in the door over there and went in for job interviews and did the whole deal that you have to do to get, get a job over there and they wound up hiring me. So, um, and it was kind of a dual role. I was kind of focused on launching the, the, the podcast area for Microsoft and then, and then um, having kind of two connections, one to the content side and then one to the engineering side. So helping them kind of architect the, the back end of the platform as well as build out the, the actual content catalog. I imagine in 2007, there's probably a short list of folks who have the, the skill set that you had at that time. Um, now, of course, tons of people have podcasting experience, but I wonder or, or if you could describe a bit of what it was like in 2007 um, in terms of how many people you knew offhand that had the combination of skills that were necessary for these types of new jobs. Mm, there's probably maybe uh, I could count them on one hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was probably maybe four or five people that I knew in the whole industry that had, you know, enough experience. Um, and I, and it's not so much about experience as much as it is just understanding what the medium was all about. And I think at the time it was the combination of my experience with radio as well as podcasting is what made me stand out. Um, uh, because back then, I think there was an understanding that uh, radio was still the dominant player and that you were going to have to play with radio um, when it came to podcasting. And if you looked at the, the early um, iTunes charts, there was a lot of radio folks in that iTunes chart um, at that time. And there still is to some extent today, but really that, that chart hasn't changed dramatically in the, in the 10 years that podcasting has been around as far as, you know, who's in there and what type of programs are in there. It hasn't really changed a lot, um, which in some ways doesn't surprise me. In some ways maybe does a little surprise me. Um, but it does kind of speak to, to the bigger, um, the kind of bigger thing that's going on in the space is that, uh, um, these worlds are converging on each other and they're, they will continue to converge. Um, the radio and the in the podcasting side, and I don't know that we have the the answer to that, but uh, but anyway, I mean, it was a a unique opportunity to work on the kind of Zoom podcasting area because it quickly became the the second largest podcast consuming platform behind Apple, um, though it was quite a bit far behind. Um, there really wasn't any other platforms that were more prominent back then. Yeah, regardless, I mean, it must have been an exciting time 
to be working there with what I imagine was seen as a cutting edge platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really trying to, I mean, unfortunately I have to say it was kind of trying to rip off Apple a little bit. I mean, I mean, if I think back on it, but I think what was created there was a very unique situation for Microsoft. I mean, it was a lot of the people that were hired um, into the Zoom team uh, were creative people. They were content people, not engineering people, uh, which typically you see at a lot of these companies. I mean, Google and Apple, a lot of the people that they, they have, maybe not so much Apple, but definitely Google, um, they tend to hire engineers. And then, you know, those in- engineering types or program manager types that, you know, take on these roles of working with content, but they're not content people, right? Uh, what what the, what Microsoft did with Zune was hire content people um, that didn't really know a lot about technology, but they knew content, uh, and that that's what was really exciting for me was to get amongst that community. I mean, I worked on the music team for Zune uh, for the whole life of Zune, pretty much, um, and I was the only guy that didn't do music on the on the Zune team. If that tells you anything. Um, so I, yeah, I got involved in all of the all of the music activities. Went to all the festivals. Went to all the events. Went to all the music meetings, and, and was just included because I was part of the team. Uh, I just happened to be working on an area that had nothing to do with music, really. Um, but I did have a lot of overlap. I did publish about sixty or forty five, forty nine um, podcasts, of which probably forty of them were music podcasts at the time, um, audio and video. So I I did have a lot of collaboration. I did work with the Lipson Pro um, program early on with Zune. Um, you know, worked a lot with Rob Walsh and 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 helping them kind of pull that that Lipson Pro program um, kind of kind of together at the time. So, and if obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, is there an inflection point or a a, a time when there was a major decision made around Zune where you thought um, this is like if maybe you were in charge, you would have done something differently? Oh, constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't so much in the early days of Zoom because I thought that they were they were going in the right direction. But it was a, a process over, over time of uh, the Zoom struggling and, and that the, the executive leadership kind of getting cold feet on it um, where they started to pull back on their plans and their priorities. Um, and started to really kind of dismantle things um, at a very slow rate, but clearly things were getting pulled apart and r- fewer resources were being allocated. And it, it was like this, um, this pullback that took like, I don't know, four or five years to fully deploy. And in some ways it's still going on today. I just don't happen to be there anymore. Um, the Zune software is still available and people use it every day. Uh, it's still out there. Zoom HDs are still being used by probably a couple million people out there every day. So it's it's still that billion dollars that Microsoft invested in Zoom is still out there. Uh, it's just people don't talk about it too much anymore. But I'll tell you, when I post uh, about it on my Twitter feed, my Twitter feed lights up because there's a lot of people that um, like to talk about it, like to talk about what they experienced with Zoom because it was a it it reached a core group of people that are very passionate about Zune. If you post on Zune and you say something positive, there'll be a lot of people that'll jump on and say, "Yeah, I agree." <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's funny because once people find, um, especially early adopters, you find with technology, like if if they gravitate and they, and they double down on a technology, um, 
you know, they're all in, right? And so they, they're they there for the ups and the downs and they sort of ride it all the way to the end until, you know, yeah. pry, pry it out of my cold dead hands. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly the feeling. I mean, it's not a, I mean, I'm not talking like, you know, 25 or 30 million people here that are doing this. I'm just, I'm just talking about, there's probably a core right now of maybe, I don't know, maybe 10,000 people maybe in the whole world that maybe have an affinity for, for what, what happened with Zune and, and it just connected with them from a brand perspective. It connected with them psychologically. It connected with them from a community perspective. I think that they liked the people that were working on it. Um, you know, I know I made a lot of connections with a lot of people that I still consider to be friends that, I, you know, it's not like I worked with them. They, they were just Zune fans that would come to my my meetups that I would have in various cities around the country back back when I was doing, doing the Zune Insider podcast. And they're just passionate people, you know, not unlike what you see in, in the world of Apple. It's just at a much smaller scale. Yeah, it's interesting. And then as as the technology dies down, then like you said, these user groups pop up. I, I just saw a documentary about uh, modular synthesizers and we were, mm-hmm. checked it out on, on Netflix last night. And it's sort of that same mindset because, you know, those very early synthesizers from Moog, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, you've got the collectors, the diehards, they hold on to them and to the point where they start falling apart and then they just start they get harder to repair um, and yep. then they become collector's items. And then they go through this interesting cycle where they end up in the trash and these, there's $10,000 units in, in trash heaps somewhere. And then it uh, becomes vintage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then it's it becomes cool again, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes a collector's item. Did you actually get to hold on to any of the, uh, the hardware or as a collector? Yeah, item? actually the, the um, right when the Zune HD was basically the team was shut down, the guy that was leading the the hardware division for the Zune HD, he basically um, had like a core group of people that uh, that he he wanted to thank for working on the the Zune platform, and so he basically did a did a run of Zune HD sixty four um, gig devices and sent them out to. There's probably like maybe. 50 or 60 people or something like that that he did this with but but he had engraved on the back of the Zune HD was a was like a um a tombstone uh for the the death of the Zune so it was like this rip you know Zune 2010 you know uh cuz that that's essentially when it was killed was in 2010 it's it's amazing that it's been 5 years already but um but yeah so I still today have a a um a Zune HD 64 gigabyte um, device that has an engraving on the back that uh, signals the death of Zune. <laughs> so I, yes, I'll take that to events that I go to and I'll show people this is this is actually what a Zune look like. And you know, it's funny is that I show everybody that I show it to, and maybe they're they're just being you know friendly or you know courteous or whatever. But everybody's blown away when they see it because most people have never seen one. Um, and then I flip it over and I show them the the rip um, tombstone on the back that's been engraved on it and everybody just laughs. They, they, they have a really good time with it. But everybody, it's a fully functioning device. It still has podcasts in it. Um, they go back to, early, well, no, it's pretty current. I keep it pretty current actually. But um, yeah, it's always amazing because they play with it and they, they just, they go, yeah, this is really cool. And, I, and they also say, I can see where Windows Phone and um, uh, Windows 8 and Windows 10 now uh, really comes from that, right? I mean, I think a lot of the, the the layout, the creative side, all originally came out of Zune. Um, 
that we see today in the the Windows um, platform. Um, a lot of the thinking behind it was very similar um, from a graphics perspective. You know, what's interesting is sometimes it's a case of being um, ahead of its time. And mm-hmm. I think Apple saw that actually with Newton, right? I mean, Newton mm-hmm. was the, the first iPad, if you will, or um, maybe the first uh, iPad. But yeah, I mean, a lot of those technologies, they sort of live on um, in, in future technologies down the road that they, they implement things that they learned or, or features uh, that, that made sense at the time. Yeah, and I, I w- wanted to mention too here too, the, one of the other things that came out of Zoom too, is, and we're starting to see it in Windows 10 right now, is the whole continuum thing, which, which is this new initiative that they have that's kind of new and old at the same time, but most people think it's new. But the, the ability in Windows 10 and some of the, the, the new mobile devices that are coming out or the new phones will have the ability to take that phone and, and um, transmit it up to a big screen device and basically create a Windows desktop experience coming off your phone. Well, the, the Zune HD um, had that ability built into it too. It had a docking station or a docking um, capability. You dock it to a television and it would, it, built into the software of the Zune HD, had a full screen television experience built into it. Um, which So you start thinking about, I mean, that was back in 2010. You, know? you don't see Google or Apple doing that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and it's very early, um, and so now we're seeing it because the same team that built that is now the same team that's in charge of Windows. Uh, um, it's it's the same leadership team that was in charge of Windows Phone and Zune. It all came out of that, and it all moved up, and now they're in charge of Windows. So um, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of the innovation that came out of Zune is now coming into Windows. That's interesting. I think what, what's funny for me when I, as I started getting to getting into podcasting and one of the recommendations people give is make sure you submit to all the directories and then yeah. they would give all the names and then they said for Microsoft, send an email to Rob at, I think it's zoom.net, Rob at zoom.net. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm sure if I still had that email address, I would still be flooded with submissions from people. So yeah, I thought that yeah, was, I still get people posting to my Twitter account. How can I submit my feed to uh, to Windows Phone? And I write them back and I say, because there is no way to submit it to Windows Phone and I don't work there. That's <laughs> yeah, funny. I always thought it was so funny because all the other places would be like, go to this website and submit the form. But for, And it was, it was funny because it was Microsoft, right? This huge, huge company. And the fact that they had like the exact, this exact guy's email, I'm like, wow, this is, he, does he answer them all? Or like, <laughs> I do. I did. Yeah. Now the that was what made, I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be really frank with you. That, that's what made the Zoom stand out with a lot of podcasters today. And I still, I mean, it really helps me now uh, with the community because I did that back then. I mean, and Apple came to me, and this is also something I don't talk about very often too. About five, five years ago, Apple approached me, not necessarily to hire me or anything like that, but to just ask me about what I was doing with that and, and how it worked and they they would love to to do that, and so today you have Apple kind of doing something very similar. They they have an email address. It's I, I think it's podcasts at apple dot com, um, and you can submit uh, questions or concerns to them right there, and they'll answer them. And that kind of came out of that conversation that I had with them um, a few years ago. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, yeah, I've had I've noticed recently they have been more responsive because in the past, I mean, Apple's just this huge black hole. Like for anything related, they go out of their way to make sure 
you don't have the ability to connect with a live human being. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these software companies are like that. There, there's a lot of people that work inside of those companies that don't want to give out their email address. They don't want to put anything or any phone numbers online. You know, I knew uh, Robert Scoble. I've known Robert Scoble for many, many years, and and he's former Microsoft as well. But you know, he's now more known for um, being kind of like a startup kind of tech evangelist, um, crazy man. Um, but, but yeah, I talked to, I talked to Robert all the time. I've known him for many years. I mean, back when he was working at, at, you know, or working at Microsoft is when I actually met him and, um, he's always given out his phone number, uh, publicly on his website, Wow, his email address publicly on his website. Uh, and I, I do the same thing and it's always worked out great for me because people can get a hold of me. I don't know how many times I, I, yeah, I want to invite somebody to, go on a show that I'm doing or some event or something and there's no way to get a hold of them. I mean, I can send them a tweet maybe, but yeah. are they even going to see that, you know? So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a funny thing because some people are afraid, Oh my, uh, you know, Oh my God, I'm going to give this information out and I'm going to get blasted with emails or phone calls. But the fact of the matter is nobody cares that much. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> no one's going to call you. You're not, I mean, it's almost like an ego, uh, you know, a poke to your ego. Cause you're like, well, I must, this is going to be crazy. And then when, and when in fact you do put it out there and then you don't get the calls, you're like, well, why aren't they calling? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why aren't they waking me up at two in the morning? Though I've had that happen before. I've had that happen before. A, a person will find my phone number and then they'll, they'll, they'll call me and they're like on the East coast or something. Yeah. And they'll call me my phone will ring at like 7 a.m. but uh, or 6 a.m. or something like that because that's when typically people on the East Coast go to work, right, is 9. So so that does happen sometimes, but it's very, very rare. So <laughs> so then after Zoom, you spent about another year working with the Xbox team? Well, yeah. Um, that was a multi-part experience, the whole thing with Microsoft. But, um, you know, I worked on the Zoom team and then I got absorbed into Xbox. It was all kind of a continuum, right? It was all over that six, um, was about a six-year period of time. Um, there was a lot of ins and outs and working with different groups and different managers and different teams. It's uh, probably an hour-long podcast just talking <laughs> about that. So, uh, and then, yeah, so I did that, um, worked with the Xbox team for a while. One other thing that a lot of people don't know that I did uh, for Zoom was actually I launched the TV store uh, for, for Zoom too. I, I managed all of the content and the partnerships with all of the big studios down in LA um, originally. Now granted, back in that time, um, Xbox was already doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, so they had already established all these relationships with, you know, like ABC, NBC, CBS, I mean, all the big, big studios. Um, but Zune was kind of like uh, becoming the the entertainment platform for Microsoft. And honestly, Xbox was a little threatened by that at that time. Um, they were wanting to be the kingpin in that. Um, and so th there's a whole story behind all that, too. It was kind of a confrontational relationship between Zune and Xbox at that time. Um, so I was the designated, uh, like I say... Um, Consigliere? I, um, I was... the. <laughs> The designated uh, target of um, all of the anguish of the Xbox team at the time uh, around their insecurity of being the considered to be um, the entertainment platform for Microsoft. So as it turned out, they became the entertainment platform for Microsoft, but that's only because they everybody killed off Zune. Um, so anyway, so I was involved in launching that 
Zoom store on the video side too. And then, then we hired a, a guy out of Los Angeles that came up and actually took over the, the TV store and, and the, the, the movie store. Um, and just manage that. And that's, that's the fellow that I actually worked for, for many years at the company. You know, we hired kind of my, my manager. <laughs> okay. So, so he was a great guy. He's now left the company and he's now working for a, uh, a, a, an online media company down in Los Angeles now. But so then after your your um your stay at Microsoft was up. You headed on over to uh, Alias. Um. Well, actually, uh, no. I left uh, that that Elias role was still working for Microsoft. Okay. So um, it was a contractor role. Um. But but I was doing the same job. It's just you know I came in and out of FTE status and contractor status over my term of six years at the company based on the the whims of the company at the time. Um, and then, then I, yeah, I left there to go to work for podcast one was my next um, step. And that was at the very beginning of 2014. But one thing that did happen while you were uh, at Elias was that you started your own personal podcast. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I tried to, I tried to actually, I, I made an attempt at bringing back a uh, web talk radio. Okay. Uh, about at that same time, I, I was itching to do a podcast again because I'd been out of the game somewhat, you know, having my own show. Um, and I just was itching to get back in. So I, I, I started up, you know, I, I did the prototypical seven episodes and then I pod faded. So I had to be stereotypical in the space and um, see what that was like because I hadn't done that before. <laughs> Well, I thought it was interesting, and I listened to all the episodes, and it was called, uh, for the listeners, My Digital Life, and it's available in the iTunes store. You can check it out. Yeah. Um, I guess my my first question is, how are the aquaponics coming along? Still going. Still charging away. Yeah. I'm still growing growing produce in water, So, and I've got fish that that poop in the water that provide all of the nutrients that the, the plants need, so... That, that kind of sums it all down. I'm actually a bacteria farmer, produce farmer, and fish farmer. So that's how that all works. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and so, and those are actually three different. Um, but they all work together. The, three different systems. No, they, it's a. It's basically a system where, where, where you have a fish tank, right? Okay, yeah. You got a big fish tank that has a bunch of water in it. You have a bunch of fish swimming around in there that eat eat uh, fish pellets. And they poop in the water. That water gets circulated through kind of like a media bed that basically has a lot of surface area that bacteria can attach to. And so the the water flows through those media beds. And as it flows through, it pulls out all the ammonia out of the water. And it, and it converts all of that fish waste into um, a chemical um, that, that is then absorbed by the, the plants. So it basically is like a filter cleaning um, thing. It's the same thing that any aquarium has. Yeah, where you have like a pump that pumps water through a filter. It's the same. It's same concept. It's just more um, on a much bigger scale. Where Where did that interest come from? Hmm. Where did that interest come from? I I just had a fascination with it. I think I saw something online at one point, and then I um, I I I started to dive in. I took some some commercial aquaponics training down in Col- Colorado. So I flew down to Colorado and started to 
to learn from people that were doing large scale commercial systems because I had an ambition maybe at some point to to create a um, a um, aquaponics farm at some point you know a commercial scale aquaponics um, farm operation uh, I came very close to doing that up here um, creating kind of like an indoor farm it'd be like a vertical farm where, where you have these water beds that flow with water and then you have like uh, foam rafts that float on top of the water with the the roots would dangle in the water so as the water flows right it provides nutrients to the roots and mm. Then you have lights that you know are pointed at the upper part of the the bed that help grow the the actual foliage. So, and um, is it yeah. is, is it is it uh, an expensive habit or a hobby? Because I mean, I'm, I'm I I started a, a little bit of gardening. I, I lived in Atlanta for a while, and I the only thing that I could I, I bought the books, and I was like, well, we were renting a house with a nice plot of land in front, of them, and I felt bad. It was getting so much sunlight that I was like, I got to do something with it. So I. I I built the um, the square box with the six inch. It's the it's the six inch um, planning box. So you don't you don't dig a full garden, but you keep um, you make this four by four box, and then mm-hmm. there's four rows, and so you can plant sixteen different things in there, and you plant short root type vegetables. So short root ca- uh, short so ca- small carrots and little peppers. I, uh-huh. I think I think I yielded maybe a two two baby carrots. <laughs> <laughs> And you no, I, I mean it was, but it was. It's yeah. it's nice to work with your hands, right? Because yeah, I, I, yeah. I bought the wood. I I created the 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 frame. You you, you line it. You buy, you buy the topsoil, and then you actually had to create the chicken wire to sit on top of it that had a place on top of it every every day when I was done planting, um, because we'd have the, the squirrels coming out and eat, eating. The oh, and sure, sure. So. Yeah, it can be it can be a little expensive. I, I think I spent about seven thousand dollars on my. Oh, wow grow operation that, that I have. It's, it's not that big, but it's in its own greenhouse. And I have, uh, I have, I have, uh, metal highlight lights, you know, high output lights out there. I think there's some, I don't know. I was a little worried that people were gonna, gonna think I was like growing marijuana out there or something, <laughs> but, but, um, but no, it's, it, it's all, you know, like I have kale and red chard out there and basil and things like that that I, I, I grow in. The, the plants get humongous. They get, I mean, I've got uh, red chard leaves that are 14 inches long. Wow. Just the, just the leaf itself, that's not even the stalk. If you look at the stalk and the leaf, it's probably close to 24 inches long or, or, or more. Um, so you can really grow a lot of stuff in, in the aquaponic system if you have a good good source of uh, fish waste. <laughs> <laughs> and so how, how, how long do the fish last? As long as they, they live. Yeah. I have goldfish is what I have. And they're, okay. they're typically probably six to nine inches long. Um, you know, I've had a koi pond before where I had koi that were up to like 16 inches, 18 inches long. Um, pretty good size fish. So, you know, they, they poop a lot. <laughs> that's a good, that's a, that's a prerequisite for aquaponics. Um, yeah. Well, nowadays, I guess you could travel down to Colorado for some other sort of ponics uh, training if you'd like. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Th- there you go. Well, actually up here in Seattle too. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. 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 That's funny. Well, I think it's just so fascinating. Like it's, you know, you said it was such a short run for the podcast, but it's just a fascinating insight because you literally took it as a like a, a journal and I, I encourage, you know, the listeners to go check it out. If only to, to hear like 
the range of topics that you covered. I mean, well, yeah, that and yeah, I was playing around uh, uh, with a Zoom H2. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a little portable recorder. Actually, I've got it plugged into my system here. I think we talked about it just uh, just a few minutes ago. But but uh, yeah, I was playing around. It was a new device. I was I was just starting to you know think about creating content again. It was really just kind of get my my feet wet again. I I spent so much time kind of working behind the scenes. Um, now, granted, I had done like the Zoom Insider podcast, and I had done you know I was doing Todd Cochran's show on Saturdays, the Saturday morning tech show, which is now the the new media show. So I'd been doing that kind of stuff, but I, I really didn't have my own show. So I was just starting something up and because being working in the space, you kind of have to do it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to keep your skills up and you're going to need to understand what to do. I mean, I could easily have just got absorbed into the helping other people do it and just spend all my time doing that. But at some point I, I would have lost uh, some of my skills because I wasn't doing it myself. Yeah, and I, and I would encourage listeners to just give it a try. I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying it and getting comfortable, like you said, with the equipment, with the way you sound on the microphone, the, the topics you want to talk about, or anything else that, you know, floats your boat. You know, some people are, are really good writers, and they end up becoming, you know, pro- prolific bloggers, and they blog every day. But for some people, for like myself, and, and I imagine a lot of podcasters, we prefer speaking as opposed to writing. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm definitely a little bit better speaker than I am a writer. So, but I do try and write. Actually, I do write for the Pottertainment magazine. Mm, so, yeah, yeah. And so the uh, the other question related to the, uh, the the podcast is 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 if you still have the Nissan Leaf. I do. Okay. I do. It's a it's a 2011. It's still going strong. There's no degradation in my battery that I'm aware of, um, or at least that I can tell. Um, it's going going great. You know, I, it's been a great experience having that. I've had it since, you know, it was like, uh, I think the Leaf, the one that I have is about the 2000th car made. Um, so it was one of the early runs. It was actually on the the last boat that left Tokyo just prior to the earthquake. Wow. There. Okay. So it, it just made it out just before the earthquake hit. Um, so it, it wasn't radioactive or anything. <laughs> Interestingly enough, and this probably speaks to where my mind was at when I was in Atlanta, I was this close to getting a leaf and I, they came to Atlanta, um, and they had at least you could test drive. And so there was, uh, something near the Georgia dome where they set up a couple of dozen. And I remember I had an appointment because through Nissan, I made an appointment. I went to go test it out and it was just like incredible how quiet the car was. Oh yeah. Um, so it was just fascinating, and and then I started thinking about like realistically, like how far can I drive? Because at the time I was had to travel to Alpharetta, which was thirty to forty five minutes away, and I was like, oh man, I don't think I could pull it off. <laughs> pull it off because that was the mm-hmm. concern, right? The charging. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the limit that you need to think about is about thirty miles one way. Yeah, is about your probably the best way to be safe that you'll actually make it home again. Um. <laughs> And you do have to be concerned about that, right? Um, <laughs> It'd be nice to be able to get home. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could pull over and plug into a 110 outlet to charge up again, but I'm going to be there a long time. Yeah. Well, um, it, I, I now have the, the 2014 Toyota Prius hybrid. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, so yeah that, I, came, I came really close to getting on the wait list for the Model S. Okay. Um, back in, because I, I got involved in um, ordering my, my Leaf almost like a year before I actually got it. Um, and so, you know, sight unseen, I, 
I had never test driven one and never had experience with it. Same with the Model S. I mean, the, the Model S, I was following that when they first announced it and came very close to putting my $5,000 down on that. And I'm actually some ways glad I didn't <laughs> um, just because of the what wound up happening with that car. It became so expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, where the Leaf was was a little more affordable. Um, and I just want an electric car. I didn't really care what it looked like. Is that uh, your only car? Do you have a, is that your secondary car? Yeah, I have a, I also got one of, one of the first, uh, Camry hybrids, um, back in 2007. Okay. So I was on a wait list for that too. And I, I took what they had available because the, the car came in and I got a phone call said, we have a Camry hybrid here. Do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> and I drove down there and I said, this looks okay. That's I'll take funny. it. So, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've been trying to push the envelope on this cause I'm a firm believer in, um, getting off oil as much as we can. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be the downfall of our civilization if we don't. <laughs> no, I hear you, man. I remember reading a book called, um, oh man, what was it? The last something, uh, the last drop of oil. It was something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, it was something about how there was a finite amount of like fossil fuel in the in the earth. They they got the numbers way wrong because I think back in this is like late nineteen this is like nineteen ninety nine and they had predicted it would be like two thousand and five. We'd run out of oil, but they always they always seem to find new reserves. Yeah, they keep going further out into the boonies to find it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I mean I'm, I'm I'm definitely with you there, and that's one of the reasons why I I bought the. The Prius, and I, I hope we can get there sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm a big fan of solar and and wind and all the stuff. We can just do more of that kind of stuff. I, you know, you know, I drive over to Eastern Washington on a fairly regular basis, and I see all these huge wind turbines that are out there. Um, that are really weird to to see from a distance, but but they're really cool. You know, like 200 feet tall and have these giant blades that spin. Yeah, know? and. Um, yeah, and I think they they cost like half a million dollars a piece or something like that. They're pretty expensive. Yeah, we've been to the Coachella Music Festival a couple of times, and on the way there, we drive, we see tons and tons of those uh, those wind turbines. Yeah. So the the other one of the interesting topics that you covered was, in addition to aquaponics and your Nissan Leaf, was actually the global the importance of the global reach in podcasting. Uh huh. And you interviewed a couple of uh, women who were international who were. Uh, not non-US based podcasters. And those conversations are really fascinating. I tweeted about one of them, I think yesterday or the day mm-hmm. before, but I think it's an important point. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it, how we here are, are so English language, US focused when it comes to podcasting that we, we sort of leave out and forget about this other potential audience and potential reach that we can have and impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that, that two part series that I did um, on that topic was, was really, I think, in a lot of ways, why I did my own show was I just needed a forum to get that out because I had been thinking a lot about that for many years. Um, I've been pushing the the Zune organization and Xbox to to deploy the podcasting internationally, and it, and so it was always kind of you know in, in the back of my mind about what was going on, and I knew Apple was pushing hard into um, you know like 181 countries with podcasting or something like that. Um, so it was this topic that I hear rarely discussed here in the U S is what's going on outside of the U S it's like, 
most of the industry is so singularly focused on what's happening here that they don't even they, they don't think outside of the borders. You know, even into Canada or Mexico or any other country. So I had been maintaining these these friendships with these these women that are outside of the U.S. in Germany and Denmark um, because they they have their ear to the ground of what's happening out there much more than I I can or have the ability to. And so I just kind of dove into this topic and and started pulling some data from um, what what Rob at Lipson had shared with me and also what uh, um, what Todd at uh, Blueberry Raw Voice had shared with me about usage uh, around where the growth is and in international consumption of podcasts. And it's like there was this huge growth in China um, and then there's this huge growth going on in the South America area, Brazil, Argentina, um, and how that over time, I, I believe over the next five to 10 years, um, that's going to be a significant influence on what's happening in the podcasting space. And it's, it's all being driven primarily off of the English language podcast, which has huge implications for us podcasters, um, that most of them don't really understand. And, and I think one of the other big things, takeaways from that is, and, and this is difficult to do as you think about being a podcaster is, is how do you make your show, uh, friendly to, 181 countries, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you could spend the whole five minutes of your intro just, um, talking about different, um, different countries and their orientations around holidays. And, you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of podcasts should typically talk about, you know, U S holidays or they'll mention it in their shows or whatever. But, in, you know, a person listening in Iraq that's listening to a show, they don't necessarily want to hear about, um, you know, Saint, Saint U.S. Pat- holiday, right? St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yeah, or 4th of July. That's probably the worst one, yeah. right? Um, and it, it just kind of resonated with me. Um, I mean, I don't even do it with my own show sometimes. I mean, I need to orient myself more to an international audience myself. I, I mean, it's It just takes so much more thought and effort to, to think about your show from a, a global perspective. And I just don't think that really very few people in the in the U.S. podcasting space even consider the fact that they're being listened to by somebody in, um, in you know, some small country in Europe somewhere, or in you know, in Bali, or I mean, I mean, I look at I've looked at many podcasts consumption in many countries, um, and there it's just amazing how many countries. I mean, I mean, you get like one listener from Zimbabwe or something like that, but nonetheless, you got one listener in Zimbabwe. You know, it's um, it's pretty it's pretty humbling when you start thinking about it. Yeah, and it's I think it, there's there's an opportunity there, right? There's an opportunity for someone to really have a reach on, on a global level, and obviously, some of the more popular podcasts are are available globally. And are listened to globally, but it's you know I'm I'm trying to think of anyone who specifically has a show where the message is global, right? Yeah, you know, and, and it's maybe- unusual. It's unusual, and I though I think that pretty much human experience crosses borders pretty well. Um, if a person can understand English. And I think probably the key takeaway for me from that series that I had was maybe just pulling out um, any kind of localization in references in your show and keep it focused on human experience, right? And which tends to cross borders pretty easily. Um, Don't talk about the 4th of July on your podcast. Don't talk about Christmas on your podcast necessarily. Don't just don't go there, right? I think is the key thing. 
um, because it, it's just not relevant to people outside of the U.S. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, if your podcast is U.S. centric or is heavily based on celebrating everything that is America, or if you have the Apple Pie podcast, and <laughs> the Apple Pie, podcast. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that is that. Yeah, I think it's good, and I, and I think for me, I think it, the takeaway is that there's there's a, there's an opportunity there somewhere um, for someone who can specifically create a show where they think about a message that's universal and global. Um, yeah. Which is hard. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. R- really start thinking about that. And it, it's really hard to come up with a, a single, a singular focus that's relevant to everyone. And I think it goes the other end of the spectrum too. And I haven't dived into this topic yet cause I, I think it's too early, but diving into the local um, aspect, you know, we talked about global, we talked about, you know, we haven't talked about local and I haven't dove into that topic either. I've got a lot of thoughts on that too. Um, w- whether or not local is going to become something of, uh, a, of a presence in podcasting. Cause today there is no presence for local really in practical terms. Um, a, a lot of radio folks would love to see local be a much bigger, but it's not going to happen until there's the same amount of listeners to radio locally as there is podcasts. And that may not even be big enough too, because there's just so much content. Um, that's available in podcasting that you're going to fragment that listener base. That, you know, I mean, think about it. I mean, how many people do you have on this show that um, that listen to this show in, let's say, Chicago? Right? Is it 500 people, thousand people, maybe? You know, even even the biggest shows, right? The Adam Carollas or or Serial maybe has you know five, ten thousand, fifteen thousand, maybe in any given market. That's small compared to a lot of big radio stations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where the 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 transition has to happen. Is that those numbers have to become equal? And I think that's what's happening in the space right now. Is that as radio declines and podcasting or on demand grows, those audiences are going to transition, right? And which means that at some point when those two trend lines cross, when radio continues to decline and podcasting grows. Once they cross, that means that the audience is even across both. Uh, and then we'll see what happens when that happens. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's uh, local and it's also this concept of hyper-local where you, get, you you go down even further and to a neighborhood level. Like, you know, obviously you're not going to have a huge following from a podcast perspective, but I imagine, I mean, there's websites that come up that talk about events that are happening in your neighborhood. I, I can't see why that wouldn't happen uh, at a, on a podcast. That's well, I'm, I'm working with a... a a new network that's forming at Spreaker right now that's um, that's going to start taking Spreaker's technology and applying it to high school sports. Oh, nice. So, I mean, you can envision kind of live streaming a play-by-play action of the, the high school uh, football team, which has been going on at local radio stations for years in local cities, right, covering the, the larger high schools and their football and basketball games and stuff like that. Well, that's – that. That can happen with podcasting too, and it gets back to this this kind of live event kind of thing too that is local. Most people are going to listen to that high school sports game. Are going to be in that city, right? Yeah. Is that so, uh, is that anything you can talk about in further detail, or is there a name for that? Um, it's it's called City Prep is the company. Um, they're they're doing it. Uh, you know, they they still think of it as kind of like a radio thing. But in a lot of ways, it's it's not. It's it's an internet thing. It's not a radio thing. And I, 
that's a term that's going to get mixed up uh, for many years to come. Yeah. Uh, I don't, you know, I tried to get them to change their terminology and not call themselves radio. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, exactly. But but it it probably still needs to be there because it it, it helps people transition, right? And uh, and comprehend and understand what's happening with what they're trying to do. Um, but you know, th- they're not going to be able to tune into it on their their car's radio dial. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, since we're talking about, we're, when we're talking about the the topic of the reach of your podcast, I'm wondering if during the the, the year you were at Podcast One, if you saw what, what you saw in terms of the trends as far as the types of shows they were going after, was it you know the super popular shows from a, from a local perspective or just really a wide variety? They were really pushing the envelope on the convergence of um, broadcast radio and podcasting. They 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 had that piece that was always driving because the the owner of Podcast One also also owns the Loveline Radio Show and owns uh, still owns a, a couple other big national kind of syndicated um, talent uh, programs. Uh, so those were getting pushed out as podcasts or segments, you know, like the. The Dennis Miller show was, you know, it's still on the nationally syndicated radio platforms, but it was being pushed out as like a five minute clip from that, that nationally syndicated radio show. And then you had other shows that were pushed out like Loveline that were all three hours or two hours were all pushed up as podcast episodes. So you had the whole spectrum going on there. And then there was original content that was coming in from like Steve Austin or Adam Carolla or, or, um, um, I'm just drawing a blank on some of the names, but um, um, they were really kind of original podcast content. So it was, um, you know, Podcast One had their own studios. They would bring in the talent. They had producers. They would produce the shows probably a little bit more like uh, radio than sometimes than like podcasts. It was kind of this kind of, you know, some of the shows had ad ad insertion break type orientations at different uh, points in the pro in the, in the podcast. So it was brand advertiser were running some of the same type of spots as that they run on radio. So it was a little bit of, and then some shows just did host reads. And, and so it was kind of this mishmash of traditional radio thinking with podcasting and, and, but you look at like a mid roll or something like that and they're, they're playing mainly on, the model of host reads and pure podcasts yeah. kind of methodologies. And so that's kind of where, where you see the dividing line between a podcast one and a mid roll is uh, one is kind of living in the radio world and the other one's living in the pure play podcasting world. And there's, there's, it, it's a difficult merger between radio principles and podcasting principles. It, it, it feels kind of, Forced. It doesn't feel quite right, you know. It just doesn't feel quite right to do both. Together. Yeah, I think I think you have to pick one, and and part of it uh, speaks to the fact that podcast one was born out of Westwood one, correct? Yeah, which is Norm Norm Pattis, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think you know he's had the, that mindset and just trying to apply it. It's a bit jarring for me sometimes, and, and you can tell when a podcast is either transitioned over from radio or has strong radio influences because you hear. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back after this yeah. break. And I'm like, wait, where are you going? It's, oh, I'm still yep. here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or I'm not got, going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> or you've got the jingle or you've got, you know, 
really things that you're used to hearing like on a, dr- on a drive time drive or uh, or worse it's <laughs> like uh maybe i should be doing something else yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's uh I, I guess old habits are hard to break and if you take yeah. a radio guy 20 years of radio and you put him on a podcast i mean that's all he's gonna know and his promo spots and jingles and and stab and stabs and all that sort of stuff yeah yeah so, so I, I'm wondering now if, if, if it's just consistent with your career that once again, after podcast one, you, you got an offer you couldn't refuse with Spreaker. <laughs> well, you know, Spreaker was a little bit of a different thing. It was more, you know, I started to strike up a friendship with the CEO of the company and, and we just started talking and he had some needs of, you know, establishing some feet on the ground in the U S and, and he just said, well, you know, if you were to work for me, what would you do? You know? Um, so I just sent him a proposal of what I was thinking that I could do to help Spreaker and, and, um, shot it over to him and he said, let's, let's do it. So that's kind of how that, I started out as more of a consultant to them. Cause actually after I left podcast one uh, on a full-time basis, I was basically a consultant to them for probably three or four months after I left. Okay. And so I was doing consulting for podcast one. And then I was also doing consulting for Spreaker at the same time. Uh, for a period of time, a couple months. And then um, we just wanted to up the game. You know, I was going to leave, fully leave Podcast One, and and they didn't really need me anymore. They had kind of moved on to, you know, they had hired a new person in there, and I had actually trained them, and he was all up to speed and everything. And, I mean, he's now gone from Podcast One as well. Okay. So uh, there's, you know, there's a little bit of a turnover going on around the whole tech side over there. Yeah. Um, but it's... So yeah, it was kind of a transition for me, and I I, I transferred over pretty much full time over to Spreaker in in mid April, um, and just you know, and I'm still there plugging away, trying to trying to build content there, um, create some original content, uh, partner with other networks, um, start getting some bigger shows on the platform. The show has a the platform has about twenty eight thousand shows on there, but most of them are small shows. Um, which is good, good for the company to have a bunch of small shows. Um, it's not so much, um, from a prestige or visibility standpoint to have a bunch of small shows. Um, it's better to have a bunch of, uh, a a certain amount of big shows on there, help build kind of credibility for the platform. And then also you can start building an advertising business. Yeah. So, which is what I'm working on. Seems like, uh, you're well positioned and, because of your experience and the fact that we're hitting this nice stride in terms of popularity with podcasting and you're with a company that seems to, to get it um, and is mm-hmm. sort of making the right bets um, in terms of, the, of where they think the future is going to be. Yeah. And I actually have, I mean, if I think back on my, my career, I've been with a lot of companies that uh, had a hard time getting it. Um, and I th- that was, that, that's been one of my struggles all along has been, all, you know, even back to Microsoft, um, you know, being with companies that really understood the the medium and were were open to understanding the the, the medium, right? Um, and that that applies to Podcast One too. So now I'm finally with a company that that they're they're open to new ideas and they're they're providing some innovation in the space. They 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 want to embrace what's norms in the podcasting space. They want to be open. They want to grow. Um, it's it's really a sweet spot for me, just based on 
if I think back to all the frustration that I've had of working with um, these other companies all along here um, that have kind of struggled to comprehend the medium itself and be open to trying some new things. Yeah, and I think when we first connected at the, at the at New Media Expo, the, you were probably only on the job for a couple of months at that point. Actually, I had just started full time with yeah. them just just that month. So I was, yeah, I was doing just doing some consulting work, kind of more prep for what my full time role was going to turn out to be. So, um, other than what you're doing with the um, the sports network, you're also doing something uh, Adore. Is it Adore FM? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, it's a new network that I'm I, I'm pulling together for Spreaker. Um, the the big picture of it is I, I wanted to create a, a, a network that um, was a platform for high-end shows um, that we could provide support for uh, across many levels from, from cross-promotion to um, ad, ad sales. So we've, uh, we've partnered with a company called uh, it's the HeadGum Network, which recently launched on, on iTunes. Um, the guys behind... The Headgum Network are the guys that created the podcast, the If, the if I Were You podcast. Mm-hmm. The old um, uh, Jake and Amir team from College Humor yeah, down in down Los Angeles. Those guys were on Podcast One. Um, I, I got them on Podcast One, got them built on Podcast One. And then when I left Podcast One, they kind of a little bit left with me somewhat. So they transferred over to Spreaker. Um, and then have just continued that relationship with them um, since then. Um, and and have, they've now launched their own network. Actually, I think they're going to be up to like 14 programs or 14 shows here pretty quick. And the Adore Network uh, has, about, uh, has about eight shows on it right now. Um, and then uh, Spreaker itself also has a network too that I'm working on as well. Um, so we're trying to build an ad business um, there. Um, to support higher end shows, get get some great shows on the platform, showcase the platform, kind of grow to that next level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have kind of that long tail bunch of podcasts that are already there. We need to build the other side. We need to build the to create a more balanced company. Um, I mean, you look at like Ellipson or whatever; they have a lot of big shows um, on, on the platform, and it's important to actually have a, a, a balance of small shows and big shows. Yeah. And so that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the big goal for me. And sort of like a, like a one-stop shop. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, really the big picture of Spreaker, they, they have creation apps. You can do live streaming Mm -hmm. on iOS, Android. You can um, listen to podcasts um, on iOS, Android and Windows phone. So we have apps for uh, on all three of the big or all three of the platforms. And so and we keep trying to push the envelope on that and try and create syndication opportunities. So if you have your show on on Spreaker, we can push it out to all these other platforms as well. So trying to create a, a real complete solution for podcasters that really hasn't existed before. And then having kind of the ad monetization part as well um, kind of built into the platform and and um, trying to create a complete solution. It's something I've always wanted to do. I tried to do it at Microsoft, but I could never get it funded. So... Yeah, yeah. It sounds, it sounds like the timing is right, and uh, for you to have an impact at that company, then. Yeah, definitely. So it's it's, it's definitely an exciting time. So, um, 
appreciating your, your, your time that you've, you've been spending with me. So I'll just got a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up. Sure. sure. Um, when you think about podcasters, um, what do you see as the biggest opportunities as you know, in the next six to 12 months? I would say that the biggest opportunities are going to center around, well, I mean, it depends on what your goals are, but, um, but obviously distribution, uh, is always important in this space. Um, though I would say we're in a content era right now, but, um, distribution is, is key. Um, we've got to get and grow bigger audiences, um, across the board, not, I'm not talking about grow bigger shows necessarily, though that's going to come with that, but to grow more listeners, which means that uh, podcasting needs to get stronger on all the big platforms. It needs to get stronger on Android. It needs to get stronger on Windows and Windows Phone. It needs to to be in all the places where people are that are consuming um, spoken word audio today. Um, that includes uh, radio. Radio has a role to play in this. Um, but it, it's not necessarily coming from radio to podcasting. It's more from podcasting to radio is I think where the opportunity is. Uh, and then the car experience, I think, uh, that's the other big key. Um, you know, having ease of use and ease of discovery and ease of control of, um, of spoken word audio in the car as we think about, you know, these next generation, um, cars that are coming out though that's a long play that's you know multi-year kind of deployment i mean just think about how often you buy a new car that gives you some glimpse into what the time frames are on that yeah so and then probably the shorter time frames will be um the series and the the siri and cortana and the the android kind of kind of spoken word actually i just said cortana and my phone woke up (laughs) and is actually searching on every word i'm saying right now I didn't even touch the phone. So that kind of. Yeah. So it's been, he's listening. Cortana's listening to me at all times. So I, I say, Hey Cortana. And she wakes up and she starts, you know, she wants to know what I want. So that, that's a little glimpse of uh, what's coming around podcast discovery too. I mean, I mean, look at the Amazon echo, which is another example of this. Uh, if you get your podcasts in um, iHeartRadio, which uh, Spreaker has a relationship with, or uh, I, I believe TuneIn as well have um, data integration with uh, the Echo, which is a voice-activated control unit, um, not unlike Siri and Cortana. Um, but you can just put in your home and it connects to the Wi-Fi network and you can just verbally say, Cortana or Echo, um, play me um, – Um, podcast junkies podcast junkies (laughs) um or this american life or whatever and it will it has the ability to go in and find the latest episode and start playing playing yeah that's a good point um so ease of of management ease of discovery uh simplicity i think is the is is the key to growth i mean think about how big radio got it was just because you got in the car turned the ignition on and started playing something right you didn't have a lot of control over what was playing um, that's what's different now, right? You're going to have control over that. Um, and, and the technology is going to, going to know what you like to listen to when you like to listen to it. And when a new episode is out of your favorite podcast, guess what? It's going to play that for you at the next opportunity because it knows that's what you want. Very cool. Yeah. Exciting times indeed. And I feel like every six months there's something happened, some new technology happening. 
um, it's it's a fun time to be a podcaster. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a fun time to be a podcaster, yeah. though. So thanks so much, Rob. You've been extremely generous with your time. And I think um, for a lot of listeners who are familiar with the history of podcasting, you're seen as somewhat of an elder statesman in the field. Um, and I think it just speaks to the, the your dedication, your passion, um, and your love for podcasting and, and the fact that you're always out there as a champion for it. So I mean, for that, I, I definitely appreciate it. And I think it's infectious and I think it's helpful for new folks coming in to see that there's people like you that are so accessible because I don't know that there's anyone that's probably more accessible if you're giving out your email and your phone number. <laughs> yeah. There's a few others that, that do it out there, but it is kind of unusual these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so thanks for all that. And thanks for everything you've done for, for podcasting. Yeah. Well, thank you for all, all you're doing and doing these, these deep conversations to get to the, the meat of the matter with uh, various people in the space. I think it's great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I'm sure the, the next 50 are, are going to be even more fascinating. There's always a lot of interesting people left to talk to you as, as I mean, I'm, you've got your own show with Todd Cochran, uh, the new media show as well. So, and, and I'm sure you can vouch for the fact there's still a lot of interesting voices out there. Oh yeah, definitely. And I'm, and we haven't discovered them all yet. I haven't had them on the show. <laughs> I would love to get, um, I'm constantly after certain people that I just can't seem to get on the show yeah. that, um, their schedules don't, don't align up or they have kids and you know, that Saturday morning is a tough time to do a, oh, yeah. do a show. Yeah. Well, that's true. Saturday morning. <laughs> so, um, other than whatever provided, uh, what's, what's the best way for people to track you down if they want to talk to you? Yeah, I would say that um, on a weekly basis, the two shows that I do, the Speaker Live show, uh, which is on Wednesdays at uh, 3 p.m. Pacific and 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, actually just go to speakerliveshow.com. Uh, you can find it right there. It's pretty simple. Um, and then my, um, my Saturday morning show at 9 a.m., Pacific Standard Time uh, with Todd Cochran, the New Media Show, and that's at newmediashow.com as well. And uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Rob Greenlee. Um, that's, those are the easiest ways. And I do have a website, uh, robgreenlee.com. That's, that's with two E's on the end. That's awesome. Thanks for that. And I'm, I'm sure folks will be reaching out to you with uh, podcast-related questions. Oh, bring uh, it on. Bring as, it on. Especially yeah. with the variety of topics that we covered, I think... Uh, <laughs> There's, there's going to be a lot of, lot of fodder there. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. So I think we covered a lot. Wouldn't you agree? It's, it's, I mean, it's a testament to someone who is so interesting that I could just go on on a bunch of different tangents and cover everything from aquaponics um, to his love of electric vehicles to obviously his his tech background and then everything that led into podcasting radio so many things to cover i'm so happy that i got the chance to finally speak to him and it went just as i had thought it would and i'm glad i got the opportunity to meet rob in person um, at the past two conferences that i've been to and i think that just allowed me to connect a bit more and and i think uh, it, it, it allowed for uh, a conversation that was wide-ranging and, and fluid and, and fun. I always want them to be fun. I want everyone to have a good time, including you, the listener. So I hope you really enjoyed that and would love your feedback. Now, if you want to support this show, which I know you do, then check out podcastjunkies.com 
for the links to iTunes. You can go there and leave a, a subscription. You can't leave a subscription. You actually have to subscribe. And then you leave a rating and a review. And you can make it anywhere from one star to five stars. I think I hear traffic. Anyway, um, one take. We're going to do this. You're going to leave a review and I'm going to be happy, and then I'll talk about you in the show, and then your friends will hear you, and you'll be famous, and you'll be like, oh my God, Harry mentioned me on the show. The only way to do that is leave a review so I can read it, and then we can hear it. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your love, and thanks for everything you guys do to keep me motivated to keep the show going. Every week I get a different comment. Sometimes it's on Instagram, sometimes it's on Twitter, sometimes it's on Facebook, or it could be a retweet. I look at them all, believe me, and they all bring a smile to my face. So this week's podcast retention hashtag is Zune Lives in honor of the Microsoft Zune. May it rest in peace. So Zune is Z-U-N-E, lives, L-I-V-E-S, one word, hashtag Zune Lives. If you made it this far, you're awesome. <laughs>